across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is the last Friday of January and as we move seamlessly out of the first month of the year, it is time to take stock. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been pondering things over the past few days as I tend to do and I've come to several conclusions about the way the world is right now. And here they are. Number one. There are truths which are inescapable. The government is finally listening to those of us who are questioning the wisdom of repeated lockdowns and economic shutdowns, even though they won't actually admit it. The European Union has proved itself to be not fit for purpose with each and every day that this vaccination row goes on. The Scottish National Party and Nicola Sturgeon will stop at nothing to destabilise the United Kingdom for their own short-term gains. And those politicians and commentators seeking to silence open and honest debate around COVID-19 are doing everything they can to demonise those they disagree with. It's all pretty obvious to me, and I'm going to explain why it should be to all of you too. I'll be asking Richard Tice, Chairman of Reform UK, what he makes of it all. I'm happy to say that he was able to take part in a very honest and open debate about lockdown last night uh, at the Cambridge Union, 03444991000. Also coming up, I'll be making a suggestion to the government, change the record, forget about all these adverts warning people that they will kill other people if they go outside and that they should stay home permanent. You know why? The Save Lives campaign needs a new slogan. Since the beginning of this year, 29,614 people have died as a result of COVID itself. Over the last 30 days, it's over 30,000. That means over 1,000 people a day are actually dying. The one thing this government is not doing is saving lives. So let's change the record, shall we? 0344 499 1000. Coming up later, we'll be hearing from Rakiba San from the Henry Jackson Society, who's been writing about the plight of white working class kids and how the new left doesn't want to help them. And we'll be asking Labour MP Meg Hillier what the Public Accounts Committee has to say about big government projects like HS2. As ever, of course, we want to hear from you as well, so do get in touch. We've got Calvin Robinson on why the BBC is failing at every turn. And because it's Friday, you've guessed it, it's time for the Perrier Awards with Marta Malagon. You're listening to me, Mike Gray. On the fastest growing radio station on the planet, it is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Welcome to Friday. It's pretty gloomy out there. I mean, we did a, a homeschooling section on the sun yesterday. Ever since then, it seems to have disappeared. I don't know what's going on. Uh, if the end of the world gets any closer, I will let you know between now and one o'clock, obviously. First up, though, let's talk to Richard Tice, Chair of Reform UK, businessman, of course, and a man uh, who's often got something interesting to say about the lockdown scenario. Richard, a very good morning to you. Uh, good morning to you, Mike. Well, it may be gloomy outside, but it's certainly never gloomy in the talk radio studios. And nor indeed last night, as you touched on, uh, we had a debate at the Cambridge Union. Uh, sadly, obviously, we couldn't be in the great halls there, but we had a fantastic debate. Many hundreds of people were watching it on Zoom. And the motion was, uh, this House believes that lockdowns are a mistake. And we, the, uh, the proposition, we won that, uh, hands down. Uh, which we were delighted by. Um, we had Sir Graham Brady and Toby Young with me on our side, Mike. But what's interesting, of course, is how different that result was compared to what we're hearing from the so-called sort of government-sponsored polls. Yes. Well, I wondered whether Neil O'Brien would have tried to shut that down. You know how Neil O'Brien doesn't like people arguing about whether something's a good idea or not. Uh, he prefers you just to take the government narrative uh, and not differ from it. Well, I mean, you know, it, it's extraordinary how... Uh, at least we were allowed to have a debate last night mm. uh, because, as you say, uh, the likes of certain elected MPs and, uh, you know, their apparatchiks and people uh, and certain, uh, you know, 
senior members of the mainstream media over at um, uh, you know over at ITV. Uh, you know, they, they literally try and shut down debate. And it's a really worrying time. Mm. But, you know, there was a healthy, um, constructive, polite exchange of views last night. And that's how debate and democracy should be conducted. It's it's so important. And we are in such a dangerous moment where actually those of us with a particular viewpoint um, are being sort of attacked and abused and, you know, all sorts of uh, allegations that... Um, uh, you know, we're sort of spreading disinformation. Yeah. I mean, some of the most ridiculous things are being uh, levelled at the likes of you and I, Richard, uh, just because we have to ask people to consider other matters than the COVID uh, uh, disease and the people who are dying from it. And as I said at the top of the show, the idea that the slogan the government is using is save lives. I mean, they're not doing a very good job of that. I think it's, I mean, if you were in uh, a company and you had a slogan to sell something to somebody, you would pretty fast change the save lives one if you're killing over a thousand people if a thousand people a day are dying. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? The government has always said we're following the science, we're following the evidence. Well, let's just remind ourselves of the evidence, Mike. Mm. Uh, the evidence is we've had the lot. We've had tiers one to four. We've had local lockdowns. We've had circuit breakers. We've had fire breakers. We've had three national lockdowns. And the evidence is, tragically, sadly, we've over 100,000 dead and still counting. Mm. We're the worst performing country in the world. So clearly, the evidence shows that lockdowns do not stop deaths. Mm. And it's really interesting when you look at different states across the US, for example, um, <clears throat> states like Texas and Florida, they've got, four, which have had sort of soft restrictions, they've got some 40% less deaths mm. than the likes of Massachusetts and New York, who've had much harder lockdowns. Mm. So the evidence is clear, lockdowns don't stop deaths. All they do is cause suffering and misery uh, to millions of people. And most severely of all, most tragically of all, is that actually the evidence is clear that they lead to a greater inequality of education uh, for our children um, between the poorest, the most disadvantaged, and uh, the most well-off, the most advantaged mm. children. There's no question about that. And it's interesting um, when we have this conversation with people who disagree uh, with us, call us lockdown deniers or COVID deniers or anything like that. The point is, is that we're not denying that lockdown uh, was necessary. We're just saying that it may not have actually, as you say, uh, stopped people from dying. And that's a, an absolute fact. You can't argue the, the opposite case to that because so many people, as you say, have died. And the bottom line for me is that surely we now have to move into an area. And I think the government, I, I, I believe what I said at the start of the show, the government is actually listening to us now. They just don't want to admit that they're listening. You know, they're talking about roadmaps, which I was asking for two weeks ago, which you were asking for as well. They're talking about ways out of this. They may not, we may not like the dates, but at least they're now moving on it rather than saying we can't say when we will be able to lift this lockdown. They know they have to do it, but they just, again, are kind of rather, rather slow in recognising that they have to do it sooner rather than later. Well, they are being very cautious. You can slightly understand the caution. You know, there are still risks out there, mm. as we're seeing with the extraordinary sort of vaccine wars with the EU. Mm. You know, there are risks to supply chains. Um, so th th there's a bit of understanding about that. But what really worries me, Mike, is, is that we're beginning to hear a narrative that actually this may not be the last lockdown. Mm. And that, you know, people are starting to talk, well, maybe next winter we'll have to have another lockdown, a sort of fourth or fifth lockdown, heaven forbid. And so what I'm starting a discussion about is we've actually got to say, right, if we're worried about protecting the NHS and the pressure on the NHS, and we always are because the NHS every winter is under pressure because it's always run too hot, Mike. 
you know, it's never had a proper amount of capacity, contingent capacity built into its system. So let's now provide that. And, and so what I'm saying, is, let's rebuild the Nightingale hospitals or their equivalent. Let's have an NHS reserve force of retired medics, nurses and doctors that's paid a small retainer, that's given um, online CPD training to keep them up to date. So that actually when there's an emergency, which we need to prepare for, there will be, that actually we've got the capacity as a nation and as a healthcare system to deal with it rather than have to shut down the economy, shut down the schools with all the huge suffering and misery that that causes. Mm. Well, incredibly, uh, Mark Drakeford, you know, the world's most pro-lockdown man, has actually beaten Boris Johnson to the punch and said they're going to open schools in Wales uh, uh, in uh, in March. So um, I think, or is it February? I mean, the, the fact is they've even come to that conclusion. It is. And actually, that's one of the joys of devolution, is that you actually got a bit of There's not um, many, competition. to be fair. Say again. <laughs> There's not many of them, to be fair. But, but, but actually, um, you know, Westminster and Whitehall don't always have the answers. And as we've seen in this crisis, they get many, many things wrong. The, the benefit of devolution is you get a bit of competitive tension between the respective nations. So if Drakeford's saying, I can get the schools open earlier, that actually, that's a great thing because it's putting pressure back on Gavin Williamson here in England to get his, you know, to get his act in order and to get the English schools open. Because we can say, well, if Wales can do it, why can't England do it? I mean, it's a to, bit like... Yeah, to be, fair, like to, 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 to be fair to Gavin Williamson, I think he is in favour of opening this, the schools at half, after half term, after February the 15th. But now that they've said they're going to need to give uh, two weeks notice, that's kind of given them a bit of leeway, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely correct. I mean, basically, it's after February half term that Wales are doing it. Williamson apparently is in a kind of a fight. As we now know, there are people inside the cabinet who are much more likely to follow our way of thinking than to follow the sage scientist way of thinking, which is basically to lock us down for the rest of time because they want to try and achieve zero COVID. I mean, let's be honest, mate. Um, if Gavin Williamson is in a fight with anybody in a boxing ring, you're always <laughs> going to back the other person, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> I just, That's you know, true. He's, he's, he's going to be long odds to be a winner. But um, uh, no, you know, I, I, it's absolutely vital. Parents are telling me they're tearing their hair out. And what really worries me is it's the, it's the tension and the damage to mental health, you know, for young children, um, you know, battling with their siblings, mm. crying to their parents, the parents crying back to the children, um, tension building up between yeah, the parents amongst each other. You know, this is an absolute cauldron of catastrophe for family relationships. Mm. And again, particularly amongst the least, least well off who might be living 20 stories up in a tower block, uh, you know, in an in, in, in inner city. Yeah. Those are the people who are most at risk. And that's the reason why, you know, we've got to get the teachers back soonest. And look, I've taken a bit of flack recently, Mike, because you know, I'm saying that actually after the first four groups uh, have been vaccinated and, and we should pay tribute, of course, every time and thanks to the fantastic vaccination programme that's going so well. Um, but then actually, if we're determined to get our, our schools back, I think having spoken to heads and people involved in the, in the world of education, actually, whatever we think, the quickest, smartest way to do that, vaccinate you know, as many teachers who need it uh, and their support staff. And then there's no longer any excuse. The unions have got nowhere else mm. to go. And, and some of the teaching unions are being fantastic. I must put that on record. Uh, but you know, there are one or two of them who unfortunately, tragically, they are a block on progress, even though many, many of their members 
want to get back in the classroom and do what they love doing. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right. And we do seem to have another vaccine coming on stream very shortly as well, um, as we learned this morning. So so there's no reason why uh, they can't just up the, the, the amount. As you say, they've done brilliantly so far. They've obviously really, really, really managed to get it, the system going well. And thank God um, we're out of the European Union. I can't let you uh, not mention what's going on over in uh, Brussels with these complete and utter barn pots who seem to think that they can use European citizens as kind of, um, you know, make weight for an argument about politics. I mean, if ever there was a, an example, albeit this is a tragic example, of the failings of a bungling bureaucracy in Brussels uh, who have completely let down hundreds of millions of citizens across the EU, you know, thankfully, we're out of that. We're out of the European Medicines Agency. You know, we Brexiteers got massive flack for that last year. But actually, within 12 months, Brexit is doing something that we never had the gall to suggest. It's literally saving lives uh, because, you know, we've got our own regulator who's approving our own vaccines. And I do think it's a bit rich for unelected commissioners that no one's ever heard of pontificating from Brussels uh, that, you know, um, that we, the British, uh, have got to uh, stop our vaccination programme and send them out of the goodness of our heart, uh, you know, lots of our vaccines. Right. Um, when they haven't even approved that particular vaccine. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's um, that's what we're seeing. And they're sort of, it's almost like a sort of bullying tactic. And, and isn't it wonderful, though, Mike, that actually one of the benefits of the union of the United Kingdom, uh, of course, and that therefore our Scottish friends are enjoying is the vaccine being injected into mm. their arms at pace, thanks to the wonders of a British vaccine uh, that's being, uh, you know, manufactured um, here in the UK. I, I, I haven't really heard, maybe I've missed it, but I haven't heard the lovely Nicola um, expressing her thanks and admiration for the team at Oxford and AstraZeneca. Well, I mean, I'm told that they don't even use the word Oxford when they describe the vaccine in Scotland because they're so anti-English now in the SNP administration. And I, and I mean in the administration, not in Scotland itself. But according to The Telegraph this morning, um, she's siding with the European Union uh, on this vaccine business because she's saying uh, that basically um, the, the UK supply uh, must must also take into account European um, arms as well. So, I mean, she's she's all, she's sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater here in order just to destabilise the UK. Isn't it interesting that if there was an independent Scotland uh, that was part of the European Union, then actually hundreds of thousands of less citizens of Scotland would have already been vaccinated as you and I speak here this morning. Mm. And I think that is, you know, that is absolutely telling about the benefits of the United Kingdom, uh, you know, of our expertise and of our willingness, uh, you know, to share across all the four nations. And, you know, we are basically a huge family. Um, uh, most of the time, a loving family. And like all families, you know, we we're going to have the odd disagreement, um, you know, the odd niggle, the odd frustration. But actually, you know, we're so invested together uh, as a union, and I genuinely feel that you know these, these this small bunch of basically they are they are extreme separatists mm. in the SNP. Uh, they want to blow apart the union, but actually, this is a decision, Mike. Not just for the citizens of Scotland, but it's a decision for 67 million UK citizens mm. because the whole of the UK is invested in Scotland, and the whole of the UK would be weakened if Scotland went out on its own. Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't think this point is made strong enough uh, by those of us on the, you know, on the unionist side that actually 
uh, you know, we are uh, we, the sum of the whole. The, the whole is so much greater mm. than the sum of the parts. Mm. And you know, we're all invested in Scotland massively, uh, and we wanted to succeed rather than be small and independent and 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 you know weak um, as, as part of uh, the European Union. No, of course. And you guys were up in Scotland, weren't you, a couple of weeks ago? Um, I think you've now got your first MSP, haven't you? We have. Well, obviously, um, we weren't allowed to be up in Scotland, but we were we were virtually, virtually there, that's there, for yeah. sure. Um, uh, and yes, we've got um, uh, wonderful Michelle Ballantyne. Uh, she's an elected MSP. Uh, she has uh, she's now the Scottish leader of, of Reform UK in Scotland, and she's doing a great job. You know, she's the only person in the whole of Holyrood who's prepared to stand up and talk against, uh, you know, the t- talk about the damage that I referred to earlier of lockdowns talk about the evidence in Scotland um, and you know she's uh, she's really taking them on and the abuse and vitriol that she is taking and that we're taking is a clear sign that actually um, the uh, the SNP and the separatists the extremists they're worried about us and they're worried about uh, her courage and her bravery in putting forward a common sense common sense mm. approach and you know she's getting lots of great people we've got lots of candidates applying to stand in the in the May elections, um, they must go ahead uh, in Scotland. So yeah, we, you know we're looking to be a real force to be reckoned with in Scotland and the rest of the UK. And that will be a very interesting sort of um, measuring point, won't it, for those people who actually don't go along, as you say, with the government narrative and who don't buy hook, line and sinker, uh, the, what it, whatever it is that the policy is that's coming out of Westminster, and who don't uh, say to YouGov polls, we want more lockdowns, you know, because I, I really struggle to believe that the majority of people in this country want there to be more lockdowns. We were, we were talking earlier on in the office about the busyness now out there on the roads, this whole idea of stay home, this ridiculous slogan that the government have got, which isn't really working, clearly, because so many people are going out to work because they basically have to. Now, I'm with you. I don't think people do want more lockdowns. But what I do worry about is that actually this time round, I think more people, we were all shocked by the speed of of what happened in the first two weeks of January. Mm. But I do worry that as people have been once again terrified by the government propaganda machine um, and the political correctness of of not daring to speak out, that actually people's confidence and self-belief as citizens of the great United Kingdom is being impacted, is being damaged. And, and you know, more and more people are thinking, well, maybe nanny state does know best. And and that's a terrible place to be because, you know, we, we need people to be back out there. You know, the, the creative, the ingenuity, the hard work that that, that has made the UK uh, so great uh, up until now. We, you know, we cannot allow that uh, to be put at risk, to be damaged. Um, so, you know, it's... It, we are in a dangerous place on all this, Mike, and I, 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 uh, I must confess I do leave sleep over it. Mm. Well, listen, we will continue to stand up for uh, our rights and continue to stand up for free speech and continue to stand up for arguing and debate. And, and whether or not we agree, Richard, on everything is not the point. Great to talk to you. Um, go and have some rest and don't uh, don't worry about it, would be my advice. Richard Tice, chair of Reform UK, businessman, of course. He says he loses sleep. There's a lot of people losing sleep right now because they don't know whether their businesses are ever going to be able to reopen. There's a lot of people losing sleep right now because they're worried about their children. There's a lot of children losing sleep right now because they're worried worried about their futures. There's an awful lot of things to consider for this government, apart from simply telling people to stay home and save lives. A slogan which I have to say seems to me to be rather inappropriate. This is Talk Radio. 
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've got some great tweets coming in. You can tweet us, of course, at Talk Radio. You can text us at 87222. Start your message with the word talk. I've got a text here from someone who doesn't, unfortunately, give their name. Just listen to Richard Tice, who I am a huge fan of. However, his comment just now, lockdowns do not save lives, is very irresponsible. Well, he didn't actually say that. He said lockdowns don't stop people dying, which is not the same thing. You know, it's one thing to say lockdowns don't work. Nobody's suggesting that they don't work, but they certainly do an awful lot of damage in collateral ways to businesses, to people's mental health, to people's health in other ways as well. And as I've said, since 29,000 people have died since January began in 2021, you can hardly say that they save lives. You can argue that if there wasn't a lockdown, more people would have died, but you'll never really know the answer to that. Let's talk to Professor Hugh Pennington, Emeritus Microbiologist at the University of Aberdeen. Professor Hugh, very good morning to you. Hi there, hi there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, great news on another vaccine uh, on the on the way. What's your review of that? Is it different from the others that we've got? And, and how soon do you think people will get it? Well, yes, it is different in the sense of the way uh, the, the vaccine has been uh, um, constructed. But they all have the same effect, and that is to make basically immunity against the spike protein, you know, which we, you know, we can see on all the images of the coronavirus, this thing that sticks out with the knob on the end. And if you make immunity against that, you make antibodies against that, your T cells recognize it, then uh, you're much less likely to get infected in the first place. Uh, and even even more importantly, you're much less likely to get uh, an illness that takes you into hospital, into intensive care, and then kills you. Yes. And that's the aim of the vaccination program at the moment, is to go for the high-risk people, you know, the elderly, uh, and of course, people exposed to work like healthcare, particularly healthcare workers, uh, and stop that kind of impact of the virus. And then, of course, we'll move on to the, the general population mm. later, try and uh, stop the spread of the virus. What, what's not known at the moment is how good these vaccines are at stopping people getting infected, say, up the nose and the back of the throat without having uh, any you know, serious illness. And if you've got that, you can spread the virus. You know, that's why we wear yes. a mask. You know, it's the virus in your nose that's going to do the damage to other folks. So that, that evidence will come out quite soon. And my guess is that there will be a diminution of that risk. Right? But it may not be, uh, you know, it may not be perfect, but nothing, no medicines are perfect in that respect. Well, that's it. I mean, the point is, is perfection is something which is very nice to want to attain, but it's very unlikely to actually be attained in the same way that zero COVID is very unlikely to be the end result of all the measures that we are taking. doesn't mean we shouldn't take the measures. And it certainly doesn't mean that you wouldn't take a vaccine, even if all it did was to reduce your risk of becoming seriously ill. Uh, that's right. And it's a, it's a very important uh, aspect of it. The, 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 you know, the risk is very great the older you are, mm. Uh, and uh, clearly these vaccines, there's a debate about whether, you know, the AstraZeneca one is as good in the over 60s and all that kind of thing. Yeah. It's certainly going to be protective, whether it's going to be as protective for the very elderly as it is for the young. Well, only time would, well, because the young don't get serious illness, generally speaking. No. So that's not really a big problem. Mm. It's whether they, it really is wor working very well in the over 80s, for example, and the Germans, oh, you know, how many cases were there? Well, when you do a trial, you don't have many over 80s in your trial, mm. you know, to test the efficacy of the vaccine. And we know that antibodies are made, and that's a, um, a sort of surrogate measure of protection. And it's a pretty good one, actually. It's a pretty good one. So, Well, yes, um, but the, Fed, I mean, the German federal government's disease control agency is not just saying... Um, you know, it might not work or it might not be that good for people over 65. They're actually not recommending it 
for people over 65, which is quite uh, a, a stance to take, isn't it? Because that would suggest that they think it might not be good for them. Well, yes, I, I don't think there's any problem about uh, side effects in the sense that there aren't any. And, you know, in fact, I think the evidence suggests that the side effects in the elderly are a bit less like the sore arm, you know, and the feeling a bit woozy for a day and all that kind of thing. They're a bit less in the in the elderly than they are in, because you know, we're elderly in the, in the trials. Mm. But not many of the elderly in the trials, even those who didn't get the vaccine, because half the people get the vaccine, half don't. And you compare the two groups, there weren't that many elderly in those in those two particular two groups in the trials. So that's where the German government's coming I, I'm, you know, one suspects that part of their argument, really, although they're not saying it, is that they don't have enough vaccine anyway, and they're sort of going to focus on slightly younger people. But you know, I, I'm only guessing. I, you know, I might be wrong on that one. But well, I, th uh, I mean, I think it, it, it illustrates, doesn't it, that uh, that some scientists disagree with other scientists, and some studies disagree with other studies. And the more data you get, the more seriously uh, sort of sure you can be. But you can never be 100 percent sure of anything. No, that's right. No, that's right. And of course. You know, time will tell as the vaccine rollout continues, uh, particularly in the UK, there's still plenty of virus about, you know, it will become evident very quickly how good the vaccine is, for example, uh, protecting people in care homes, you know, which have been a real target for the virus ever since it came here, you know, nearly, nearly a year ago. Uh, and clearly that evidence is going to be uh, available pretty soon. And my guess is it will show a very marked effect on protecting people in care homes because there are still one or two care home outbreaks rolling at the moment. Mm. But of course, it's too early to sell whether the vaccine would have stopped it because you, you've got to get the vaccine rolled out and then you've got to wait two or three weeks before people start getting an immune response yes. which protects them. Yeah, so I mean, I guess, I guess the key here... A little early to comment on yes. that. Yes, I guess the key will be, Hugh, when people have got the vaccine and who still get COVID, because I've known people have told me that, you know, I've, I've spoken to some people in the in the NHS who have been vaccinated and some of their colleagues have still then got COVID. The, the, the proof in the pudding will be, if they don't get it too badly, then it will be obviously seen as a good thing. And, and just looking at the numbers today, uh, 28,680 positive tests down, uh, 83,000 um, for the week. Um, so you would hope that that's an indicator of, uh, of the numbers of infections going down. Is that what you're seeing? Yes, I think so. Yes. I mean, there's no doubt that that figure, which is the most important figure about what's happening you know, in the last few days, which is the number of new cases, mm. is going down, which, you know, I mean, everybody's breathing a sigh of relief on that one. Yeah. And you know, part of that, of course, will be due to all the stringent lockdown measures and so on. A little bit of it. Not much probably on the vaccine yet because it's just too early to have that impact. I think rolling into the figures, although it will be having it will be having an effect. Although many of the people who've been vaccinated, although they're high risk of getting a bad disease, are not particularly good. At, well, we weren't particularly involved in spreading it mm. because people living in a care home, for example, you're not going out. You know, the residents in care homes are sitting there and uh, they're not spreading the virus to people in the community. Uh, except, of course, the occasional care worker might be going out and uh, infecting people and so on. But still, you know, that, that, it's too early to say how much of the impact of the vaccine is having on the number of actual new cases. Small, probably real, but the main effect is, of course, the lockdown, uh, basically blocking social contact, which is the way the virus spreads, mm. is having an effect and let's hope that effect continues and speeds up. Well, let's see. I mean, looking at the patients admitted numbers as well, uh, last seven days, 25,365, down 3,000-odd. Uh, that's 11% down on admissions to hospital. That's also uh, going in the right direction. 
That's right. And that, that, that's a figure that's delayed because generally speaking, you know, it takes about, after you've been infected, it takes a, nearly a week for you to actually start getting symptoms, then usually about another week before you really feel ill enough to take medical advice, get into hospital, and then another week or two before, if things go wrong, before you get into the intensive care and all that kind of stuff. So those figures are, are quite delayed from the point of view, the point of infection. And, and so, you know, you wouldn't expect to see a, a rapid decrease in that um, uh, until time has elapsed from the increase decrease in the mm. number of new cases. Yes. And Mark Drakeford in Wales, the First Minister, has announced that they're going to open primary schools on February the 22nd. Um, do you think that's wise? Well, yes. I mean, the, the evidence that schools are good sort of hotbeds of spread of infection is very poor. I mean, children are not very good at spreading the virus. Um, the, the, I suppose you could say that the, the people who are really worried are the teachers because they might get infected in the community. They might get infected occasionally from being in a, in a classroom. But the evidence that schools are major transmitters, particularly primary schools, are major transmitters of the virus, is quite different from flu, where they are. They're real hotbeds of infection where children take the viruses home and infect their grandparents. That doesn't seem to be happening anywhere near the same scale mm. with coronavirus. And of course, one has to take a risk on these things and balance the downside of not having children in school, which is very great, from the, the you know, the, the, the potential problem of spreading infection, which is really quite low. So it, it, it's one of those things I've been saying for, for months and months and months. I'm just glad I'm not a policymaker to have that take that slightly tricky um, decision. But you have you have you have to take a decision. Well, you do, um, and let's face it. I mean, you know, you can't really take politics out of these decisions, as you know. Um, Mark Drakeford has not exactly been an enthusiast for for lifting the lockdown. But if he's the first person to do it in the UK, then surely that's a pretty good message to send to Downing Street to say, "Can we do the same thing, please?" I think so. I think so. That will put put a bit of sort of background political pressure mm. on Downing Street to move in the same direction, yeah. which I think everybody would welcome if if the insurance can be given. This is not going to lead to a surge in cases. I'd be very, very, I, you know, I don't think it would. Mm, I think that's absolutely right. Professor Hugh Pennington, thank you very much indeed. Emeritus microbiologist at the University of Aberdeen. If you're a parent uh, and you've got primary school children, you will know precisely uh, how difficult it has been for this month not send, sending them back to school and trying to ensure that they do their homeschooling and trying to make sure that they log into their uh, classes every day and trying to supervise them while maybe you're also trying to work from home. I know that's been difficult for an awful lot of people, so I'd love to hear from you. 0344 499 1000. I don't normally uh, congratulate uh, old Mark Drakeford for anything, but if he's the first person in the UK, in the first part of the UK to lift uh, the lockdown on primary schools, then I think he should be applauded because he's clearly seen what we've been arguing for for a very long time, which is it's time to start taking measures to get things back to normal. Because certainly it would appear from the infection rates and the hospital admission rates that uh, certainly there are fewer of those going on. And therefore, the direction of travel is downwards on the graph, which can only be a good thing. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, let us talk uh, to uh, Meg Hillier, who is, of course, Labour MP for Hackney South and Shaw Ditch. She's chair of the Public Accounts Select Committee, because something that we talk about an awful lot here uh, on my show and on other shows at Talk Radio is the kind of government's complete and utter inability to seemingly grasp big projects, get them done on time and under budget. I don't think I can think of one that has ever done that. Let's find out from Meg uh, what their report is likely to say. Meg, a very good morning to you. Welcome. 
Morning, Mike. Always good to talk to you. Yes, thanks very much indeed for for coming on. I mean, I don't know what it is about government projects. I mean, we've we've seen at the moment some unprecedented spending on COVID, and I I dare say now is not the time to look into that because there will be another time for that. But when we talk about things like HS2, I even go back all the way to build the building of the Scottish Parliament. You know, which I think was ten times over budget from the original uh, estimations of of what it what what they were going to cost. And and you've been looking at all of this with the Public Accounts Committee. Tell us what you found. Yeah, well, I'm afraid to say it's a bit of Groundhog Day. You know, it's the bread and butter of the committee to look at these projects individually. But we've looked, we decided to pull it all together and look at it together. And time and time again, government does, as you say, fail on these. And one, there are a number of reasons for that. One is over optimism. Uh, sometimes it's because it's not easy to deliver the political message about what something will actually cost. Mm. But also there's a sort of ridiculous attempt sometimes to produce a deadline that's absolutely absolute and a price that's absolutely absolute. And we're saying, actually, sometimes you need to be just a bit more honest that there are going to be variations on these things. And you need to have, allow that wriggle room. Um, but also rigorously drive down the cost because all the, most well, the projects we look at, of course, are funded by the taxpayer. So yeah. people are working hard and paying the money and uh, they wouldn't want to waste the money themselves. And so government should not be wasting it um, for, on their behalf. No. Is there an element of sort of contractors putting in um, estimates to get the contract and then basically going, as long as we get the, as long as we get the contract, then we can worry about how much it's going to cost later? No, I mean, there are times when, you know, there's a contractual failure. That's not really what we were looking at. We were looking more at the end of the planning end of it. Mm. So the business case, as it's called, where you, you go to the Treasury with your begging bowl as a, as a department and you put in your business case, you get it through. And too often they are not well worked up or, you know, at the beginning or the contract is worked up, but not the whole delivery plan. And then quite often you don't then have um, it well run during the process or, or you get changes along the way and it's just a bit like if you had an extension built to your house you mm. know and then you suddenly decided you wanted to double the size or put in roof like the builders rubbing their hands with glee because they're making more money out of the changes yeah. and we need greater clarity at the front end before things are done and better planning yes i mean three of the projects you, you mentioned high speed two uh, emergency services network and universal credit uh, in particular i mean they're obviously three massive areas let's start mm. with universal credit which has been in the news recently because um your leader keir starmer's been asking for the government not to cancel the extra £20 that's been given to people. I mean, that, of course, adds up to £6 billion a year, doesn't it? I mean, is that part of a problem which is ongoing? Well, I mean, the, once you've got the system in place, whether you give £20 a month, uh, a week more, you know, and I, I have to say I'd be in favour of that in this mm. current situation. That's not the, the issue because that's a political choice, ultimately, about what you think people need to live on. And we would say that extra money is important, vital, in fact. But the key thing is how it was set up. So it, remember, it was introduced in the beginning of a coalition government. So they knew they had five years for certain to try and get it through. And it's a project that's really... Well, you know, pretty much a 20-year project, mm. uh, certainly to get it all embedded. It's not even completely rolled out yet. So when you've got something that big, you can't try and hammer it through in five years. And you've also got to really understand the real lives of the people in that case that you're serving and understand the challenges. So in that case, for example, they had, you know, uh, didn't, it did add to the cost because they had to change things, four-week payments rather than monthly. So that didn't fit with most people's pay packets. So this was a quite a fundamental design error. Right. And, but had that been worked up better at the front, that might have been saved costs down the line. So you really got to rigorously test all these assumptions. And you still might make mistakes, but at least you've given it a best shot. Right. And too often those uh, those haven't been worked through properly. And how is the process generally done? Is it because do you sit in rooms with civil servants? Do you have models? Do you have, you know, um, sort of projections as to how it would work? Do you have people, what I would call real people in there actually saying, well, what about the actual, you know, common sense effectiveness? 
Well, that's what I always say, Mike, and that's partly what we think are the public accounts committees. Therefore, yes, we look at the numbers, but we also like to inject that common sense approach. And that is, I think, one of the big concerns. So you've got very clever people in Whitehall um, who will think the policy through, so the idea of what they're going to do. But we, we have said repeatedly, you don't have enough people who know actually how to turn that idea into the practical project and deliver it. And crucially, you know, if you're going to talk you're going to do something to people you need to do it with people so you need to understand the lives of the people you're affecting uh whether that's people along the line route of hs2 or whether it's the people who are uh, uh you know getting receiving universal credit so i mean i have to say i was a minister a long time ago now but one of the things you learn is that you really do need to do what you don't do in any other form mm. of life you go out and talk to people right. and if you do that you get it better but if you don't don't check whether that's been done. That can be one of the first pitfalls that you can you need to overcome. Right. I mean, you make some recommendations as well from the committee. Um, who do you make those to and, and when can you see if they're actually taken up? Yeah, well, we've been making some of these for a little while, but some of them are fairly straightforward to deliver. So one of the things is that, that's crucially, the government's uh, said it's going to spend £600 billion, pounds, just to repeat that, £600 billion pounds mm. on major projects over the next five years. Now, that sounds really fantastic and everyone's going to go great, but actually that's a lot of money to spend well in in that time. So we want them to have really clear plans about how they're going to get that money out the door and not just chuck it out to say they've spent it, but actually make sure it's actually delivering. So that's one very practical thing that we can work on. And then the thing, the thing about telling us what's going on, Parliament and the public, so that there are regular, clear, easy-to-understand reports. We've had real problems with HS2 and now, thanks to our work, um, uh, the Department of Transport is going to report to Parliament in detail twice a year and um, we help to shape what they will send to us so that we can really see and track those costs and I think that's really important because it's not other people's money it's taxpayers money mm. and people who are spending it need to remember that and remind taxpayers what's going on and then we keep saying we need the right skills in the civil service people who can do this work you know being a very clever person doesn't mean you can necessarily deliver a project on you know on the ground and get it delivered these huge huge multi-million in some cases multi-billion pound projects so that's something that the government's the civil service uh, and government still yeah. got to work on. I, mean, I read a piece by Tony Blair in The Independent yesterday about how the, the, the process of government and the whole process of the way the world operates is kind of likely to change as a result of, of COVID and the amount of money that we've all spent. I mean, is it likely that in the future the civil service will have to become a bit smaller? The public sector won't be sustainable at its current levels just because there won't be enough tax money coming in? Well, I mean, that's a, oh, that's a big question huge to ask yeah, at the big end. question there. <laughs> Uh, I, mean, I think you have to ask the Chancellor Exchequer. I mean, there's lots of rumours he might be putting taxes up in the short term. We've got a budget we're expecting in March, maybe in the autumn. I mean, look, we're in unprecedented times about the many tens of hundreds of billions of pounds spent, unprecedented figures. So it's, it's but we've really actually got to have some clarity from the government about how it is going to plan the future of the country. And and actually, my party needs to set out our vision because they may well not be the same. I think um, well, it certainly won't be the same. Mm. Um, and actually, um, but, you know, the public sector, let's be clear, has a very important role, especially at times like this. Who's been delivering um, support to people who are uh, in lockdown um, locally? You know, who's been making sure that people have got their food, the support and helping set up the vaccine centres and all all sorts of things local government and uh, for example has an important role the nhs has obviously been saving lives and it's uh, our schools that have been educating or trying to educate our pupils in difficult circumstances that's all public sector jobs which of those would you want to see fewer of i think is the question and obviously the civil servants in whitehall are only a tiny part really mm. of the whole of public sector so i think we've got to be careful when we start saying let's sweep away people who we will need we've seen very big cuts to local government for example for over 50 percent over the last decade and that's really rather shown uh, it's put the pressure on them when they plan to deliver on covid mm. so cuts don't necessarily need value for money because sometimes you then have to spend more money backfilling it later on yes very possibly so meg thanks very much indeed good to talk to you meg Hillier, mp public accounts select committee chairwoman of course uh, we'll be talking more about hs2 as the time goes by
subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's time to say a very, very good morning to uh, Dr. Rakeem Hassan from the Henry Jackson Society. Rakeem, how are you doing? Morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Very well indeed. Uh, interesting piece uh, you've written this week for CapEx about uh, racial equality um, and how it's not really being achieved, but not because of the way most people would think it's not being achieved. Tell us about it. Well, the, I wrote two pieces, Mike, one for CapEx and also one for The Telegraph. It was basically... Uh, looking at the problem of white uh, working class teenagers being left behind uh, and the poor educational outcomes within this particular section of the youth population. And the main points I made in both pieces was that when we're looking at the areas they're from, they tend to be from uh, coastal uh, seaside towns and former uh, industrial communities which which have truly been left behind and they suffer from high rates of family breakdown. There's also been the disintegration of shared civic institutions. And these are the kind of things that aren't being talked about as much as they should, perhaps because we have these uh, these woke intersectionality frameworks where being seen as white, especially being a white male, is seen as a form of hyper advantage. But when you actually look at educational outcomes, Mike, it's white working class boys which are being left by the wayside. And people, I feel that there's there's too many people in the political classes. They're not willing to engage with this problem at all. No, exactly right. And what's interesting as well about the way that you've described where the, the worst cases of this can be found is in a lot of sort of seaside communities. And, and I mean, I myself know quite a lot of the communities around Britain for one reason or another. Hastings is is, is very, mm. very uh, poor and run down. Blackpool is another place where there's an awful lot of, uh, of, of, of terrible kind of social housing and, and very bad um, uh, uh, sort of uh, styles of life. And then you've got places on the Norfolk coast as well. Why do you think mm. it's so prevalent in those places? Well, some of those places that you mentioned, Mike, they've been fundamentally left behind. They've been starved of meaningful public investment for decades so you mentioned there uh, you know great yarmouth blackpool hastings uh, thanet would be another area that uh, springs to mind and what's really interesting mike that recent research recent research has also shown that these are what we could call, what we could identify as divorce hotspots so you could say that the, you know, the material deprivation and the economic downturns in those coastal areas, they're placing a strain on families. And I think that is feeding into relatively high rates of family breakdown. And the reality, and the reality of the matter is, Mike, family structures play an important part 
of youth personal development, mm. whether it's school attainment, cognitive development, mental health, emotional well-being. But it's almost it's unfashionable now, Mike, to talk about the social value of marriage or, you know, how um, how useful it is to have stable family units and rather that the heavy impact that family structures have on these kind of important youth outcomes and unfortunately i find that in some progressive uh, quarters they're so concentrated on being inclusive and they want to say all structures can work but the research shows that that there's certain family structures which fare better when it comes to these kind of outcomes among our young people especially uh, white working class children yeah. I mean, also, there's a more of a prevalence, it would seem uh, to me, in those seaside communities uh, of, of a white population, because an awful lot of, of, of the inner cities, of course, are, are very much more diverse in terms of the different ethnicities that live there. But uh, going around the coastlines of Great Britain, you don't mm. really find an awful lot of diverse mixing uh, of, of, of different ethnicities, do you? No, not at all. I'd also make the point that this is also a problem when we're looking at uh, white working class kids being left behind. Uh, what doesn't get talked about very much is how this is also a problem in rural communities, Mike, which are geographically isolated. So, for example, Devon and Cornwall, all, all too often by the mainstream media, is portrayed as idyllic, peaceful, affluent uh, counties in the southwest of England. But within those two counties, Mike, there's very serious forms of material deprivation and and family and community breakdown. Mm. But that that doesn't receive much attention at all. Yeah. The point I made in the pieces is that when you look at uh, pupils on free school meals, uh, white British pupils on free school meals, they're falling behind uh, their peers of Chinese, Indian, Bangladeshi, and South African or uh, South, uh, no, sorry, Black African origin, who are also on uh, free school meals. And I think the issue there is, uh, or rather, we need to talk about the cultural factors there, is that irrespective of socioeconomic status and uh, affluence, there are many South Asian and Black African communities. They they include parents who relocated to the UK, one of the main reasons was to provide their children with greater educational opportunities. Mm. Like, so they're very, uh, they're very concentrated on instilling, uh, you know, a strong sense of self-discipline and aspiration within the household. And they're more likely to take well, the, the, the stable family units in these communities, they're more likely to take a genuine interest in their children's educational development as a result of mm. that. Well, in that case, then, from what you're saying, is it not the case that the, the white kids' parents or the white working class kids' parents who are falling behind are falling behind because their parents are not doing that? Well, I think that there needs to be a discussion, and I think that this is a really good starting point. We need to discuss the effects of family breakdown, especially in deprived seaside towns, former industrial communities, and geographically isolated rural communities. And we need to we need to talk about household culture, the extent to which education in itself is seen as a productive uh, path to take in terms of employment opportunities. I think the big point I'd also make, Mike, is we're talking a lot about the academic route. I think that what we need to do more generally with our own you know, education system, we need to create a more multi-route education system where we promote vocational education. So we have sort of, you know, we have these German style vocational institutions as part of a broader skills revolution in the country. And a part of that also has to be high quality apprenticeships. But the key here is looking at cult cultural attitudes uh, within particular communities 
the uh, family structure within these communities and how uh, how this can then be reflected in social policy which leads to more productive outcomes in terms mm. of youth development yeah because i've always believed that the wrong approach for a lot of this stuff is to kind of continually subsidize people to continually kind of just throw money at things and set up youth centers and set up you know mm. ping pong clubs and places like that what you really need is to create uh, a sense of aspiration and i was wondering actually because of your mentioning of the seaside communities whether fishing as an industry which britain now wants to build up could be part of that you know where you could actually get kids training trained up to, to, to be in the fishing industry in, in, in all manner of different ways because one of the things that we hear all the time uh, is that we allowed our fishing industry to die mm. around our coastlines because we basically gave it all away to the French and the Spanish however if we are going to build up the industry why not get the local people to make that a, a job opportunity absolutely I think I think that part of the you know if we have the kind of uh how how you can say it, sort of local economic regeneration in those coastal communities a big part of that will be trying to regenerate the uh, you know re regenerating the fish traditional fishing communities there but ultimately the key is is being aspirational hard working and self disciplined in in whatever sector you're in if you have those kind of values and you have that kind of life approach more likely than not, you will progress in mm. life, for sure. Yeah, I think that's true. But I think that's very much handed down from family to family, isn't it? From parent to parent. Because I was going to ask you whether there's any evidence that you know of uh, where you could compare and contrast, for example, first generation um, immigrant families coming from the places that you've mentioned, but also maybe second and third generation um, ethnic minority families who have been here a while. I mean, I suppose what I'm saying is do they, uh, do they kind of level down, if you like, once they've been here a while? Well, I think the point I'd make is when we look at certain communities, some communities are more intergenerationally cohesive. And I think this was a big part um, of the pieces that I've recently uh, written, is that, you, you know, there's a great deal of wisdom that can be transferred down generations. And I think that's certainly the case in certain communities. But I think more generally, we live in a society where in the social mainstream, loneliness among the elderly is a, is a serious problem. So I do think those intergenerational social bonds they have broken down and they can be potentially a rich resource in terms of cultural capital, transfer of knowledge, transfer of traditional uh, conservative values that actually gives gives younger people a sense of rootedness, which is essential for their personal development. Mm, absolutely right. And as far as the way that uh, um, that other kind of public monies are spent, I suppose. I mean, there's all manner. When people talk about racial equality, they don't normally talk in your terms, Rakeeb, about the the, the, the the poverty and the white working class problem. They talk about, you know, how unfair it is on ethnic minorities who don't have the same opportunities. I mean, that's been the narrative that we've had literally mm. for the past year, isn't it? Well, I'd, I'd make the point that with the, some of the things that we're discussing uh, in this conversation now, Mike, you know, belonging to a stable family unit being part of a supportive local community which ta which takes a genuine interest in the progression of their young people th th those are very meaningful sources of advantage which are thriving in uh, certain in in a number of ethnic minority communities especially british indians as we know you know the very upwardly uh, upwardly mobile socioeconomically successful but then we look at the uh, white working class kids, but especially white working class boys who live in sort of ge geographically remote uh, coastal and rural communities 
where they may come from dysfunctional family units. They may be part of local communities which are atomized and don't take much of an interest in their development. So I think we need to look at inequalities and disparities through a more family-centric lens and, and uh, through a more community-oriented prism. Otherwise, I think we're missing a big part of the broader picture. Mm, absolutely. And you wrote earlier in the week as well about uh, the left in America. Let's just finish with that because obviously they've got um, all sorts of problems in the US now. Uh, the idea that Joe Biden suddenly gets elected and it all gets solved is proving slightly more difficult than they thought, I think. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you've warned about not not addressing and not kind of adopting too often the left's views from the United States of America. Absolutely. I think that would be a real mistake for the contemporary British left to import the the kind of, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the woke thinking which is taking place within the American left. I think that would be a, a very serious error. Mm. I think that President Biden himself, even though he's tried to promote this message of uh, unity and cohesion, He's come up with things, for example, there's going to be specific economic relief for African-American, Hispanic and Native American businesses. But, there's, but it's very clear to me that there's many white owned businesses, especially in the industrial Midwest, which have also struggled a great deal during the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. So and I think more generally, we have to understand that there's a very different culture there in the United States. There's different legacies surrounding the issue of race. So I think just to import these kind of almost a divisive cultural politics from the United States, I think it'd be very harmful for social cohesion in the UK. Well, and the reality of the matter is, Mike, in the UK, the vast majority of ethnic minority peoples, while they want, uh, in, uh, they want opportunities to be improved, they don't expect favours. The vast majority place uh, importance on their British national identity. And they're satisfied with life in in the UK. So I think to import those kind of culture wars from across the pond would be a real mistake mm. for the modern British left. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Great to talk to you again. Dr. Rakuba San from the Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism at the Henry Jackson Society. Find his stuff in the Telegraph, uh, in CapEx, other places as well. The Spectator uh, from time to time. <laughs> Full compliance, first time this year. Brilliant. I had Absolutely to tell them fantastic. that uh, I was going to send them to a hotel for 10 days if they did not comply. <laughs> ah, speaking of which, speaking um, of it's which. almost coming up to uh, 12.49. Yes. Uh, that'll be 11 minutes uh, left for the uh, influencers Ooh. from Dubai to get themselves uh, into Heathrow before having to be locked away for 10 days. How's it going? I've got an update. E excellent. They are over Kent, just to about to go across the River Thames right. south. Southwestern. Can you imagine the, the the tension? Look, listen, they're about to go down the Thames. We might see them flying over the building. Well, I was thinking it that. It does quite often fly that way, doesn't Sometimes it? Sometimes they do, yeah, because they have to do a few laps yeah. to lose altitude. Oh, don't talk about laps. So <laughs> that'll keep them even more busy. So yeah, they're just crossing the River Thames now. They're not going to make it, are they? They're not going to make it. Uh, this uh, track wrap says uh, ten minutes past. Yes, uh, this one. is BA flight. What is it? At uh, one zero four from Dubai to London Heathrow, uh, and supposedly needs to get in before one. We don't know, as I say, nobody's explained it to us. We'll have to no. ask Simon Calder whether if we you should. touch down, does that mean you're here, or do you have to actually be off the plane and into the building through immigration? I don't know, but we whatever know. it is, they're not making it, and they're all going to be locked no. away. So you can look forward to loads of Instagram uh, posts from inside horrible little hotel My rooms. My life in quarantine. Yeah, I haven't got any makeup. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh my gosh. My God. That was a bad sandwich I've been given for lunch. I need to stop. I know. Um, anyway, well, listen, uh, welcome, uh, <laughs> welcome to the Perry Awards. And good afternoon. Thank and you. welcome again. Yes. Why not? Why not? To the Perry Awards. This is where we look back over the past week of the so called Independent Republic so of my Graham on yes. Talk Radio and choose our favourite moments. Mm. Tradition says the first Perry goes to you, Indeed. Mike. Uh, yesterday, you were speaking to space expert Greg Smythe Rumsby yes. about the sun, and you made the joke of the week. Uh, in fact, I think Neptune is a good gauge because I know the fact there. It's 900 times less bright at Neptune than it is on the Earth. Uh, you know, in a nice a bit like day. Scotland then. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose you could gauge it like that. Well, he got it anyway. I thought yeah, that's true, did. isn't it? It was very dark here actually this morning. He was really until, dark. Until our show lifted the gloom. I think that's what it was. That's 100%. Absolutely. Because we had sun in the morning. Mm. Then we had. It's supposed to snow again tomorrow. So, so I heard from Kevin, I think. I'm excited. Me well, maybe we'll see it this time. We didn't get any last week. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. I think you might see it maybe. this time, but yeah. I don't know. I don't know what no. I'm talking about. Um, during the same conversation with uh, Greg, uh, he provided the correction of the week. I mean, everybody likes a good space movie, and everybody likes to think about things like the sun because you assume because you see it every day, and the sun rises and sets, and it gets light, and then it gets dark. You just sort of think you know all about it, but I bet we don't really know very much about it at all, do we? Well, we do. We do know an awful lot about our home <laughs> star, as it were. Well, he does. Well, He's yeah. an astronomer. Yeah, but, I it's mean, his job. I yes. kind of meant most of us, mm. you know. Well, it's good to It's good to. It's specify. like saying to a nuclear physicist, we don't know much about nuclear physics, do we? And then he goes, oh, yeah, we do. I do. <laughs> you know, I thought it was a bit of a cheap shot. All right, fair enough. Mr. Rumsby. My apologies. Anyway. Caller Daryl in Jersey wins the classic phone of the week. Uh, well, I was listening to your conversation with Steve... Brian. Yes. Uh, and um, uh, and I found that it was, um, uh, let's say... Um, it's, it's, it's always distracting him as well because he couldn't get the sentence out. Well, no, bless him. Was it a phone, do you think? Yeah, that was an iPhone. Okay. Yeah, that's I, definitely I wasn't an iPhone. Sure. It could have been a cuckoo clock or something. No, 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 it's an tell. iPhone. Oh. But, you know, speaking of uh, weird noises, yeah. Catherine Burblesing uh, collected the peri for the alarm of the week. But what is, in your view the way forward for schools opening in this in this sense yeah sorry those are our pits here at school <laughs> for lesson changeover and okay. sadly there are no listen th- i'm glad th- to hear it i mean that should be a, a sound that makes everybody happy lesson changeover it is nobody hears that at the moment we used to, we used to have one of those at my school we had a in, bell but did you yeah that's nice yeah we had like a sort of like fire alarm that was mm. really scary yeah that's not good no it's not good i didn't like it sometimes also, i still hear it you know you? in my head it's like trauma Yes. Really? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. God. Okay. Um, yesterday we spoke to LaDonna Harvey. Mm. Uh, she's the host of the breakfast show on KOGO San Diego she radio is. station. Mark, you very kindly gave her a plug for a show. And you, you, you were like, all right, well, how do I sell this to UK listeners? So they tune into her mm. show. What is the thing that they're going to most going to care about uh, about her show? And for that, you win the uh, salesman of the week. Donna Harvey from KOGO in San Diego, California. Listen to her show. Uh, it's very good. And also you get traffic reports from the uh, San Diego freeway, which is always quite interesting for me. For you. Yes. I mean, yeah. because it's always stuck. I mean, it's 16 lanes of traffic, all mm. solid. Never moves. I think I've seen pictures of that. It's amazing. But then if it always stuck, then you could argue that those traffic bulletins are redundant because you could. they're always stuck. And nobody's they? obviously listening to them because they're all going on the same road. Well, exactly. The they're all jam. stuck in the traffic. <laughs> I guess what it is, is that they're used to it being bad. But yes. if it's really bad, then they yeah. need to know. 
if it's Fair worse enough. than bad. Fair you know, enough. Like there's been a crash so they just don't, don't go out. Just don't bother. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, Mike, you also win the metaphor of the week. Go on. And the fangs have now been exposed. Rather like that scene from Alien I was just describing to Julia Hartley Brewer. You know the one where Sigourney Weaver's standing there in that huge, horrible kind of gaping jaw opens and the teeth they are about to envelop her entire head. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the European Union, right? Uh, we know. Crikey. Blimey. I've got a, a little update for you. I'm sorry to look distracted. Go on. But I've just, uh, Gareth, our uh, social yeah. media genius, oh, hello. has just uh, sent me a photograph of the plane. <gasps> it's flying. It's above much. us. I did see, uh, um, it's going across the River Thames again. Five and a half the minutes Putney they've got. side. Yeah. So it's in Putney. That, yes. So they can actually see Putney Heathrow bonds. now. Yeah, probably, yeah. Imagine how frustrating that must be. <laughs> oh, my goodness. There it is. Get land, <laughs> just get down. But we can't land yet. Yeah, we have to go around again. Oh, no. That's happening. Can you imagine? Brilliant. I can. We'll um, put this out. Yes, definitely. Yes. Um, yesterday was your dog's birthday. Happy birthday to your dog, yes, Ziggy. seven. Which I adore. Yes. Uh, he was lucky enough to get a very special shout out. Which says... Happy birthday, Ziggy. Happy birthday. Remember, always to be kind and to listen to our podcast. You can get it on Spotify. Happy birthday, Ziggy. <laughs> he How was very, very happy kind about of that. He heard it as well. He did. I, he did. Oh. He's now a much kinder dog than he was. Of course. Because he's doing what you know, Megan asked him to do. Of course. You need to play the podcast to Ziggy, honestly. Yes, He'll we will a much do that this dog. weekend, yes. Please do. Yeah. Um, and before I give you the last uh, update of, uh, of the plane, it's going over Richmond Park. I wonder <laughs> if they can see the deer, you know. From, from <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is ridiculous. It is amazing. Remember I don't know we... why we're so obsessed with it, but it's just funny, isn't it? You know what it was? Remember when we tracked Pretty Patel coming back? I think it was she was coming back from Africa, wasn't she? Yes. She was about. She was to going to land to, to get sacked. To get fired, yeah. Goodness me, why that bother? was fun. I'd have been hanging around in the arrivals <laughs> hall for a while. Can't find my luggage. I'm so sorry. I can't find my passport. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, uh, sometimes, Mike, it's best to leave the impressions to the professionals. No offence. Here's Lewis McLeod with his very accurate Boris Johnson. He's got his own train. Steam, steam. Very accurate. That is very good. It sounds just like him, doesn't it? Sounds. It could be a government briefing. It could. Easily. Yeah. Easily. Absolutely. Right. Um, I'm gonna go because it's late. Is it? Before you go, um, can I just give you a quick message? Go on. I've just checked on my son's painting tweet. Oh yeah. Impressions. One million. 8,019. Well done. That's incredible, isn't it? That is ri- well done, Christopher. incredible. Now we're going to auction it for charity. We'll do that next week. Well done. Well what done. do you think? That's very lovely. I think that's a very good idea. That is a very good idea. And I think I'm going to do... I'll name the charity now because it's my friend Donald McLeod's charity, the Nordoff uh-huh. Robbins Trust, mm-hmm. which helps uh, children who are struggling with learning difficulties and all of that. And uh, they play music to them and it's really good. So we're going to do that. Well, that is I a fantastic idea. Good deed for the week. Well For done. the month even. Well done. Thank what you, a Martha. way to finish the show, to finish the week. I know. Uh, I can tell you that uh, the plane is about to <laughs> land at Heathrow. Three minutes early. Three minutes early. I think they're going to make it, you know? No, they're all going to fight each other to get off it. Can you imagine? I think they are going to make it. Look, there's the airport. There's the plane. They're you definitely know, going to make it. So they land on solid ground. That means they're in? I don't know. We've established that we don't well, know the answer to because this. Because imagine if they land, right? And then the gate's not ready. You know, and well, you have to go to, towards the gate, but then sit. Sometimes you land in a very far away part of the airport, yes. so you've got to like taxi to the that terminal. That can take fifteen minutes. And then now with COVID restrictions, that you disembark by a row number. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be tricky. 
Blimey. I'm a tricky. Anyway, that's Stay all home. from me. <laughs> Thank you, Marta. There'll be more next week. <laughs> the Perrier Awards on Talk Radio. Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.